studying the feasts of the Old Testament. Um, there are many, many feasts in the Bible. Um, there are minor feasts like Yom Kippur, uh, Rosh Hashanah, Purim. And there are three major... There are handouts over there. Um, there are three major feasts, what are called the pilgrimage feasts. Uh, this is Passover, Weeks, and Tabernacles. And uh, I've written it down here for you. Um, the dates correlate to 2016 because the uh, Jewish calendar, like virtually all traditional calendars, uh, is a lunar calendar, so it kind of shifts every year. We're on a solar calendar. Um, uh, that's the genius of the Romans to figure that out. Um, and I think uh, uh, when I say we're going to study feasts, it seems perhaps relatively uninteresting. <laughs> um, it seems irrelevant because it's part of the ceremonial laws, right? There are... Uh, Theologians broadly categorize three different kinds of laws in the Old Testament. There are moral laws that have an abiding uh, value and uh, purpose uh, forever. Uh, there are civil laws having to do with Israel as a nation, like uh, criminal penalties and so forth. What, what, what incurs the death penalty, for example. And then there are ceremonial laws having to do with temple. The temple having to do with worship, having to do with all the sacrifices. And we know as Christians that there is no temple, or rather that Christ is a temple, or even more deeper, that we, his body, are the temple now, right? That we don't have a physical temple. Um, and therefore, all the ceremonial laws are complete or fulfilled in Christ, or another way to put it is they're all obsolete. So we don't actually practice or observe these feasts of the Old Testament. So why are we studying them? Why are we talking about them? And so let me give you three reasons. Let me pitch it to you, persuade you to not walk out on me 10 minutes into the class but to stay and persist and, and persevere. So the first reason is that it helps us to understand the Old Testament, and in particular, it helps us to appreciate the life of a devout Jew. Um, it's hard for us to imagine what it's like to live in a traditional culture in which you're basically 90%, 95% of people were farmers, right? And... and the, the 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 three major har- uh, the three major uh, feasts were linked to major events in the harvest season, the harvest calendar, right? The agricultural calendar. So Passover is the start of spring, weeks is the start of harvest, um, and the tabernacles is the end of harvest, right? And you know, for us, we only notice the seasons because maybe we dress differently slightly, <laughs> but essentially we do the same thing all day long, all year long. But if you're a farmer, what you do in spring, what you do in fall, what you do in winter is dramatically different, right? And so it, it definitely, so you, you notice the annual season, you notice the changing of the season very dramatically, and the fact that these feasts are linked to significant moments in the agricultural calendar um, marks the times, in fact, every ancient culture has festivals or feasts linked to the agricultural calendar, so in that sense, the, uh, the Jewish culture is not any different, but what makes it so distinct and unique is that these uh, 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 agricultural feasts are linked to um, their relationship to God. It's linked to the story of Israel, right? And we'll see that. And so it helps sort of regulate their religious life. It constantly reminds them of who they are um, as the people of God. The other thing you need to keep in mind is that in the ancient world, it's a world of food scarcity. Right, we we food is super cheap for us, relatively speaking. 
But in the ancient world, food is, 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 is a very relatively precious commodity. You would experience famines all the time. Um, you would have times of starvation. And uh, feasts were usually for, if you were, if you were uh, sort of lower middle class or if you were poor, feasts were literally the only time you got to eat meat. So you would always eat like kind of like grains and vegetables, and the only time you got to eat, you know, steak or chicken, you know, or lamb, is at these feasts. So, so the feast made an imp- incredible impression on you. You got to eat a wide variety of foods, and feasting was the only time that Israel also collectively gathered together as a nation. Um, and the reason for this is because these were pilgrimage feasts. Pilgrimage meaning you had to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So let me read to you the first passage, Deuteronomy 16, 16. Three times a year, all your males shall... So three times meaning the three uh, major feasts, right? The pilgrimage feasts. All your males shall appear before the Lord your God, listen, at the place that he will choose. So at the time that the Torah was written, the first five books of Moses, uh, they did not know which was go- what was going to be the holy city of God on which the temple was going to be built, the capital city which we know later on, in fact, we're going to get to it in our sermon series, we're going to find out later on, Second Samuel, it's Jerusalem, right? So they, they had to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem at the place that he will choose, at the feast of, the three feasts, right? Of unleavened bread, at, at the feast of weeks, and at the feast of booths, right? So by the way, you, you can see in the Jewish calendar, each feast goes by different names. <laughs> um, so we'll talk about all the different names. Uh, for example, weeks is called harvest, also called first fruits. Um, and then the second thing is that, uh, so, there were, so it was the one time that you can collectively be together, right? So if you were a Judean from the tribe of Judah, you know, if you're, if, if you're from the tribe of Reuben, or if you're a tribe from the Issachar, like you don't get to necessarily see each other until these pilgrimage feasts, you're all together. Mm. And the other thing is that it's a holy convocation. Let me read it to you, Leviticus 23. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. So here's a vocabulary word. What is, what is a convocation? What is that? What, what does that mean? Who can I put on the spot? <laughs> the root word being convoke, right? What's a convocation? Everyone's looking down. <laughs> okay, so... To convoke means to call together. So a convocation is a gathering. It's just a fancy word for a gathering, an assembly. Um, uh, we use that word, right? Where, where do we use that word? Like in the graduation convocations, right? Yeah. So, so it would, it's, a, it's a holy convocation, right? It's a holy gathering, meaning what, what are we talking about? This is a worship service. So this is so this is a national. Think about it: a national worship service three times a year. Everyone gathers together and praises God and thinks about God and so forth. Uh, second reason: it's not coincidental that all the major, that not all, but many of the major events in the New Testament map to the Old Testament feast days. It's not a coincidence. Um, the reason for this is this. You have to realize that Jerusalem, the capital city during uh, during the time of Jesus, was a relatively small city. It's rough. The estimates are it's about tw- it was about twenty thousand people. Uh, you would think twenty thousand that's like a farming village in you know in the United States, but in the ancient world, twenty thousand was a major major city. Um, and but but relatively small 
compared to much, much bigger cities in the ancient world. But what would happen is that because you have these pilgrimage feasts, right? And if you're if you're coming from especially far away, um, you 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 stayed in, you stayed the night or you stayed the days in Jerusalem, so the city would swell. Um, we have all kinds of wide estimates on how large the city would swell. Some estimates are it would swell from twenty thousand to two hundred fifty thousand at the height of of Israel's sort of like peacetime era. It would swell to a million or more, so fifty time fold, right? The city would just be packed to the gills, right? And so the event, so so every time you have a feast day, almost no doubt Jesus went to those feast days. And even though in the New Testament, uh, the gospel accounts, particularly the three synoptic gospels, uh, it's sort of portrayed that Jesus only came to Jerusalem during what, right before he got crucified, but, but almost without a doubt, during his three years of ministry, throughout his entire life, adult life, he was going three times a year, every year, to Jerusalem, right? And, and so, so that's why you have these confrontation events happening during the feast days, because it's, it's Jesus is going to Jerusalem. And you have to realize this, that the feast days are celebrating the history of Israel. It's celebrating um, the unique identity of Israel to God, and God's rescuing work, God's, God's, God's great plans for Israel, and what is happening during the time of Jesus in Jerusalem. Like So imagine you're a devout Jew. You're obeying the Torah. You're a Torah-following Jew. You go to Jerusalem. What do you see that's a little bit unusual? <laughs> Roman occupation. Yes. You see Roman soldiers. You don't necessarily see Roman soldiers in your daily life because you're in a village somewhere. But now you see them. And that's a direct affront and contradiction to the, to the very thing you're celebrating. And so it created this really tense atmosphere. The Romans, on the other hand, see the, the, the capital city swell 50 times fold with a bunch of Jewish patriots thinking about their national identity. So the Romans would quadruple um, their, their, their troop presence, right? So they, 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 they had a fortress. They would you know, bring in extra troops, and everyone was on guard. So the Jewish pilgrims are on guard. The Roman soldiers are on guard. It is not an accident that sparks happen and the action happens during the feasts, right? Michael, so, yeah. can I interrupt and ask a question? Yeah. Uh, getting back before, uh, to your very first statement about the people coming in and to these festivals without only eating grain and you know bread and vegetables and so forth. The meat was obtained. Yeah. Is it because of the giving of the uh, to God, and they were uh, sacrificing the animals for, for them to share during this feast? Is that how they got the meat? Or Yeah, so it's, 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 it's too difficult to bring a lamb with you. So they would purchase the lamb in Jerusalem. So that's why it was big business. Um, this, and, and the temple authorities, the, Sa- the uh, Sanhedrin, controlled this. So it's kind of a racket, a bit, a bit like the mafia. Um, and so... So it wasn't that they were... They were poor, though. These people, you said, only had... Meat well, no. Is that, is that so a lot of times, so you're supposed to share. There's a lot of sharing going. We'll talk about the sharing aspect. <laughs> oh, you will. Yes. Right. We'll, we'll talk about it. All right. So number three, um, finally, the feasts are ultimately meaningful, deeply meaningful to understanding the gospel. There's the handout. Um, 
the New Testament events are fulfillments of the Old Testament feasts. So here's so here's my thesis. It's not just a coincidence that these new significant New Testament events unfolded during the feasts. It's not just a coincidence. It is a fulfillment. So that what was being celebrated on each feast day was a promise that came true in the New Testament. We'll talk about that. Very significant. And therefore, I hope that the purpose, one of the purposes of the class is I hope that you will see the beautiful unity and cohesion of Scripture. That when you look at the Torah, when you look at the first five books of the, of the, of the Bible, there's a lot of quote-unquote boring laws. And, and um, we're going to look into, we're going to look at Exodus, the middle chapters of Exodus, not the fun narrative aspects of Exodus. We're going to look at Leviticus, we're going to look at Deuteronomy, full of laws. And if you've ever tried, committed yourself to reading the Bible through in a year, these are the chapters that kill you, right? These are the chapters that put you to sleep. But I hope you will realize that these chapters are beautiful chapters. And that they ultimately are telling us about the gospel, they're ultimately telling us about Jesus, right? Alright, so, um, let me read to you Exodus 23. This is a very good uh, summary of the three feast days, uh, three feasts, uh, three feasts. Um, there are three major passages in the Torah that talk about these three feasts. One is in Exodus, one is in um, Leviticus, and the other is in Deuteronomy. But we'll read the Exodus 23. Three times in a year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None, of, none shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year you sh- shall all your males appear before the Lord God. So uh, this today we're going to talk about Passover, which of the three feasts is probably the most well-known. Right. So... Uh, 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 hopefully a lot of this will be reviewed, but hopefully I'll have some interesting insights. The next two weeks, I imagine, will all be new, and it'll be fun. Next week, I'll talk about uh, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Harvest. Fascinating. So interesting. I hope that you'll come to that. And then uh, the next week, the third week, Wade will teach on the Feast of Tabernacles um, and its connection to Jesus. All right, so... What is Passover? Uh, let's read. So what I'm going to do is uh, we're going to read Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 17. We're going to read it one verse at a time or a few verses at a time. And I'm going to comment on each verse as we go along. And we'll see how that goes. All right. So Exodus 12, uh, verse 1. The Lord said to, Mo- to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So... This is the month of the Hebrew month of Abib, um, and in the Jewish calendar, it's the first month. It's a lunar calendar, right? So it matches the seasons, um, like uh, the the Roman calendar that we use. The, the 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 first month is January, which falls in dead winter, which I've always thought is a little bit odd. <laughs> Actually, I'd be curious. I I would I would want to think about it and read about it. Why 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 is it that? But the Hebrew calendar begins in spring. So that's the first month, right? And it's it's very symbolically significant that Passover is marks the first month. Because Passover is the birth of the nation, right? 
And you can think of it as Jewish Independence Day, right? Uh, it's their 4th of July. Because it's the day when they were brought out of Egypt as slaves and they became a nation, right? And therefore, it really helps to explain why things went down the way they did. When Jesus, uh, at the end of his life, he comes to celebrate Passover, which is Jewish Independence Day. And think about how Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem, right? Everyone's saying, Hosanna, they're waving palm leaves. And then the Sanhedrin rushes to the Romans and they say, did you know that there's this man, Jesus, who is claiming to be king? Now the Romans, this is Passover. The Romans are alert. They're hypersensitive and it's tense. And somebody tells them um, there's somebody who's leading a rebellion. The Romans are like, arrest them, <laughs> Right? I think in many ways, Jesus may not have been crucified if it wasn't Passover. Because it was Passover, the atmosphere was so charged and so tense. Um, that's very significant, right? So it's Jewish Independence Day. Um, let's read on. Verse 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb. So this is the Passover lamb. According to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And, see, I drew a lamb. I, I, I looked up how to draw a lamb, and I drew it. Um, and, <laughs> and if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. And in verse 5, very significant, your lamb shall be without blemish a male, a year old, you may take from it, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Um, did you know that? <laughs> it doesn't have to be a, a sheep lamb, it could be a goat lamb. I believe we have a different word for a goat lamb. It would be a kid, right? Yeah, but they, their word is the same. You, you, can, you can have a sheep or a goat, and you shall keep it uh, until the 14th day of this month, then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts of the, uh, and the lintels of the houses in which they eat it. All right, so what's going on? Um, anytime you have meat, like when you have a meal um, and you have meat, I suppose abstractly you, you understand that there had to be some slaughtering of animals, right? But it is abstract. It is removed from you. You don't know it. This is the one meal in, this is the one feast in Israel where the, the act of killing the animal is a central part of what you're supposed to be thinking about, right? So there is slaughtering of lambs. And, um, and what this is saying, the, the, the death of the lamb is a sacrificial death. So that the lamb is standing in place of the family, so the family is spared because the lamb loses his life, right? So that, uh, and so this connects to this whole theology and 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 dense structure of laws in which the animal bears the sins of the people i don't know how to draw people so <laughs> so there 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 is substitution going on right that's the symbolism this is why in verse 5 it says your lamb shall be without blemish 
Um, in other passages, it talks about there's, there's, there's good, there to be no defects, um, no injuries on the lamb, no discoloration on the lamb. Right? The lamb is supposed to be a beautiful, perfect lamb because it's supposed to show that it's an innocent animal without any flaws so that this innocent animal dies in your place you who are guilty, right? So that you, if your moral record could be exhibited on the physical, we would all be like limping, right? And blotched and, and diseased looking, right? So this perfect lamb is sacrificed in place of us, right? Now, uh, let's talk about the elephant in the room, which is that modern people really hate that idea, right? Why, why? So why can't God just forgive us? Why does God require blood, death, slaughter, right? Um, why can't God just let it go? Um, and so let me give you a very, very quick response and answer to that, which is I think one helpful way to think of it is that sin is destruction, right? You know, think about it like this. You, you, you go into a museum, you see a beautiful painting, and you take out your knife and you slash it. You destroy. It's this vandalism, right? Sin is is ripping apart and destroying the fabric of God's universe, the social fabric of, of how people are to relate to each other and care for each other. And whenever you have that kind of destruction, simply saying, like, like if somebody comes to your house and, and destroys a, pri- a priceless artwork... If you say all is forgiven, that doesn't fix the problem, so to speak. There's still the destruction to to grapple with. That doesn't repair the destruction. So there always has to be payment. Somebody has to replace what has been lost or repair or, or make it right. And what the Bible is saying all throughout and what, what, what the story of Passover is saying is that somebody has to bear the price. Somebody has to bear the payment. And what God is saying is, I'm not going to make you bear the payment. I'm going to take the payment. Um, Or rather, he's saying, a substitute will bear the payment. And we'll talk about who that substitute is. All right. Uh, That's my 30-second defense of why there has to be a bloody sacrifice. There cannot just be... um, sort of a waving of the hand and saying all is forgiven. Any quick questions on that? We talked about that a little bit. All right, let's press forward. So verse 8. Ah, this is very interesting. This is fun. All right, verse 8. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. Okay, roasted, that's important. With unleavened bread, and that's important, and bitter herbs, that's important too. They shall eat it, do not eat any of it raw, right? So why not raw? I thought about it a little bit. Um, and so let me just say this really quickly. Uh, sort of a broad stereotype between the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, or maybe the difference between Jew, uh, Jewish sensibilities and Christian sensibilities, is that Jewish sensibilities, they're very action-oriented. They do things. They're, it's a religion of doing um, with not a lot of explanation. The doing of it makes you think it's, it's a very embodied religion. Um, so there's no explanation. So you just have to sort of think about it. <laughs> um, uh, in Christianity, there's a lot of explanation, much more so. Uh, why not raw? 
I think probably because eating raw lamb is not good for you. <laughs> um, but there's a reason why there's even a warning why you shouldn't even eat it raw, and we'll talk about that. Okay, do not eat any of, any of it raw or boiled in water. We'll talk about why not boiled, uh, but roasted. There it is again. Its head, uh, its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, with your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. All right, so let's talk about this meal. It's a very symbolic meal. Every element of the meal, even the preparation of it, is symbolic, right? The first thing is we're supposed to eat unleavened bread. By the way, uh, well, let's talk about what, what is leaven, right? So what what is leaven? JC. I don't know. Oh, okay. See, so if you smile, if you don't want to be called, you, you look down. <laughs> Yeast, yes, yeast. And what is yeast? Yes, right. So, I believe it's bacteria, right? Yes. Um, um, so you 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 need need some yeast into the dough, and then when you bake it, the bread rises, right? Now, uh, the requirement is don't eat, don't put yeast in it. Take the yeast out eat it unleavened. By the way, every time we take communion, and we're taking communion this today, at this ser- during service, um, we, we, we use what's called matzo bread. The, the, the actual Hebrew word here is matzo. Right? So we eat matzo bread. Matzo bread looks like a cracker. Like, when I first encountered it, I was like, how is this bread? It's just like matzo cracker. Uh, the reason why is because it's basically flat bread because there's no fluff or substance or no... Um, huh? Oh, there's no uh, volume. volume. Thank you. There's no volume. It's just flat, right? Because there's no yeast. So, so we're eating Passover bread, by the way, in in um, in the Lord's Supper. Why? Why is it unleavened? Yes. No need to do all that preparatory work. No need to wait. Just bam, boom, right? Because um, we're because. <laughs> Look at the last sentence. You should eat it in haste, right? Because the departure was a hasty departure. Um, in fact, th- this is emphasized in verse 11, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. They're basically eating it like in a moment's notice they can leave. That leads to why the lamb is roasted. Why do you think the lamb is roasted, not boiled? Quicker. Why? Because it's directly on the coals. <laughs> I don't know. I just, there's no like... It's directly on the coals, so there's no middle ground to make it take longer. Yeah, well, that's what I think. I have, I don't cook. <laughs> <laughs> so all you cooks out there, is that true? Is it faster to roast a, a lamb than to boil a lamb? How about yes. getting water? Back then, you have to go to get the water. Yeah, so to ro- uh, to boil requires a pot, I suppose. It requires water. Requires boiling the water, right? So is that fair that roasting is faster? Yeah. So. Basically, like, if you have a lamb and you're like, we only have a few minutes, eat it. <laughs> um, you roast it and you don't eat it raw, right? Um, you get salmonella, right? Um, roasting it is the fastest way, right? So that's, so that's why. So why the unleavened bread? Why the roasting of the lamb? It's all emphasizing haste. It's a super fast meal. 
And it's to emphasize and remind God's people that this was a miraculous intervention by God. The, the people of God were in slavery in Egypt, and suddenly, in the middle of the night, they have to leave. Right? It, it happens in the middle of the night, it's the sudden departure, and it emphasizes God's miraculous de- deliverance. They didn't see it coming, it wasn't a slow preparation, it wasn't politicking with Pharaoh, it was boom, they're out. Um, the other element they're supposed to eat is bitter herbs, right? Bitter herbs, because it's supposed to remind them, what what is a bitter herb? Are there bitter herbs? Um... I, 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 this, I'm not, I'm the wrong person to talk about these elements. But, um, so bitter herbs, uh, to emphasize, so I guess it was an unpleasant meal then? Can somebody, has anyone partaken Seder with a Jewish family? Um, so it's, it emphasizes the bitterness of slavery. So I, here I have Exodus 1, chapter 1. Let me read it for you. They, the Egyptians, ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter. Same word, by the way, with hard service. So their life was really bad, terrible, full of hardship. And so they eat this lamb, roasted lamb, with, with bitter flavorings to remind them of the, the bitterness of their experience. Um, one other element that is not in the biblical passage, so this is an interesting thing, is that Passover came, it came to be that Passover was eaten with four cups of wine. This is not in the biblical text, but it became an official part of the meal. And uh, we know this through, um, not only, we, we know this because the Jewish people drink it with wine, but also there, it's in rabbinic texts like the Mishnah and so forth. We'll talk about that later. So the whole meal is a dramatic reenactment of God's salvation. It's a salvation meal. Right? Uh, of God's great rescuing out of Egypt. Let me read verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on, and an, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's where we get the name of the uh, of the feast, um, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So, in order to understand what's going on, you have to understand the story of Exodus. The people of God are in slavery. God sends Moses. Moses tells Egypt, "Let my pe- I mean Pharaoh, let my people go," and he sends a series of plagues. The tenth plague is that God is going to send a destroyer. Um, that's the actual word in the Hebrew. It's been translated angel of death by other people. Uh, maybe, so be it. Um, a destroyer who is going to go into each household and and slay and slaughter the firstborn son of each household. That's very sig- uh, symbolically significant. It's a little bit hard for us to, to appreciate because we're in a modern culture um, where we don't play favorites. <laughs> um but in the ancient world, uh, if you were the firstborn son, you were the most important child in that house. Uh, because by custom, they, all the inheritance laws would pass to the, uh, to the first son, the firstborn son. I, I remember uh, growing up, my dad being from a more, more traditional culture, he would always say to me, son, you are the firstborn son. <laughs> uh, he says, and I'm the firstborn son. That means you're the firstborn of the firstborn. Uh-huh. 
And that means a great, that means great prominence. One day, everyone is going to die, and you will sit at the head of the household, and all your cousins will pay obeisance to you. Okay, that has yet to happen. Um, <laughs> um, but that's the way ancient cultures, traditional cultures thought and believed, right? The Bible's not endorsing or embracing that, but it's using that as an image or a metaphor, right? The, the firstborn son is the most important son. So for God to slay the firstborn son is to effectively end the future of the family. The family's future is dead. It's over. So that the firstborn son is a representative of the family. So in effect, God is slaying the entire household. And I want you to notice something strange about the 10th plague. Unlike all the other plagues, it's universal. If you look at um, a lot of the other plagues, like the plagues of uh, diseases or like uh, gnats or like... Um, animals and so forth uh, it was localized to the Egyptians only so that the so that the Israelites the Hebrew people in Goshen were protected so it was at, it was ethnocentric plagues right it was it was directed at the Egyptians the tenth plague is the only plague that is universally afflicted on everybody in the land of Egypt Jewish or Egyptian and what is that telling us it's telling us that this, I mean, because if God, if the goal was God, for God to merely deliver his people, why not just slay the firstborn sons of Egypt? Then Pharaoh will react the way he will react, and then Israel can go free. Why, why does he do it on everybody? And the answer is that this is judgment they brought forward. This is a picture of judgment day. This is a judgment against sin and idolatry. That's what it says in, at end of verse 12, right? This is ju- the judgment of God. And this is the judgment on sin and idolatry. And Israel is just as guilty as the Egyptians when it comes to idolatry, when it comes to sin. Um, any questions on, on that? All right. Uh, verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. So... It's a memorial meal, uh, the root word being memory. They're supposed to, future generations of Israelites, of Jews, are, when they eat the Passover, um, and it still happens to this day with our Jewish friends when they take Seder, um, they're remembering their deliverance from Egypt. But I want you to know that it's also a foreshadowing of the future. Um, why? The answer is, because the lamb is not truly a, a, a sufficient substitute for your sins. So it was always a foreshadowing that one day, this is a promise, it's an image, one day the true lamb of God is going to come. Um, the real lamb, Matthew 26, let me read it to you. Now, as they were eating, so this is Jesus in the upper room with his disciples on the night of his betrayal, the night of his arrest, the day before he is uh, to be crucified. Um, actually, it's the same day he's crucified, if you understand in, in the way Jewish reckons days, right? Day begins at nightfall. So as they were eating, Jesus took bread. What is this bread? He's eating Passover with his disciples. This is the unleavened bread. He's eating matzo crackers, right? Uh, Jesus took the matzo cracker, and after breaking, after blessing it, he broke it, and then gave it to his disciples, And then he said something that has never, ever been said in any Jewish Passover in the history of all Passovers. 
because there was a prescribed series of sort of liturgical words that were supposed to be said, Jesus decides to change the rules. He changes the words, and he says, take, eat, he says, and then he says, this is my body. Then he takes the cup. This is one of the cups of wine drunk, drunk at Passover. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. And then he says something that has never been said. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew, new with you in my Father's kingdom. So what Jesus does is he takes the basic elements of the meal and he imbues them with new meaning. So he says the Passover bread, the, the unleavened bread, which was a symbol of haste, remember? He says, now it's a picture of my body. And when, when, when he breaks it, it's a picture of his broken body. This cup being poured out, it's a picture of my blood, my blood being poured out. And notice there's no mention of the Passover lamb. Um, and I think that's deliberate on the part of the uh, gospel writers because the Passover lamb is sitting at the table. It's Jesus, right? Jesus is saying, I'm the true Passover lamb. He's saying, where he talks about the forgiveness of sins, he says, the lamb never forgave your sins. It was always a foreshadowing promise that I would come and I would be slaughtered. Um, and we see this everywhere. Let me read two passages. John chapter 1. This is John the Baptist. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him. And what does he say? He's thinking about the story of Passover. He's thinking about the story of Exodus. He looks at Jesus and what does he say? The strangest statement. If you were a Jew, you would think this is a very strange statement. He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, Revelation, at the end of history, all God's people are going to be gathered together, a holy convocation. We'll be singing with our hearts full, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. What are we talking about? We're talking about the Passover Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And therefore, don't you see that it's extremely significant that Jesus was crucified at Passover, the Feast of Passover. So that the original Passover was, 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 was anticipating and waiting for the real Lamb who would be really slaughtered for the real forgiveness of his people. That's Jesus on the cross. He died on the cross during Passover. Right? When all the people were gathered together and they were thinking about their redemption, Jesus was crucified in their midst. So that's what, that's what was going on. But I want you to know that the meal is not only thinking about the past, it's not only thinking about the future, but then even Jesus' new meal, which is the old meal, transformed. We're, we're, this Sunday, we're, this, after, I mean, during service, we're going to take the Lord's Supper, which is really Passover. We're going to take Passover, which is the Lord's Supper, but that those two meals are also still pointing forward to a future meal because look at what Jesus says in verse 29. He says, I will not drink again until I drink uh, it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Right. So he takes the cup and he says, I'm not going to drink it again. And he talks about some future event. And what is this future event? It's foreshadowing a future fulfillment yet to come, a future meal. And what is that meal? It's in Revelation 19. It's the wedding supper of the Lamb. There's going to be, at the end of history, an incredible celebration. If you think about it, Passover is not a very festive feast. It's a very solemn feast because there's blood, there's bitter herbs. You're thinking about uh, 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 slavery. The Lord's Supper is also a solemn meal. 
um, you're thinking about the death of our, we're thinking about the death of our Savior. But both of those meals are pointing forward to a real, a real feast, a real festival. Um, and it's interesting that it's described as a wedding feast. Um, I have a Lebanese neighbor, like, like, like he grew up in Lebanon, and he was telling me that in Lebanon, they have uh, their wedding celebrations, he says, are one week long, which I think is like crazy. Right? I don't know how you do that, but uh, apparently it's a seven-day wedding celebration feast. It's just an incredible party. Middle Easterners, I guess, know how to party much better than us Westerners, right? So it just goes on day after day after day, and you're eating good food, you're enjoying good company, there's wine, it's just an incredible celebration. That's the promise that the Lord's Supper and Passover is ultimately pointing to. One day, one day, the king will return, and there's going to be an incredible party where where, um, God's people as the bride is going to finally be united to the bridegroom, heavenly bridegroom, Jesus Christ, it's not in your handout, but let me read to you Isaiah 25, which is a prophecy of that future meal, of uh, this feast. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. Remember, this is a world of food scarcity. So, so most people just ate gruel. <laughs> most people just ate porridge all day long. A feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine, the best wine there is. A food, of rich food, full of marrow. What is marrow, right? It's, it's the stuff in bones, right? <laughs> but basically, like really fantastically well-cooked meat. Amazing, succulent, not, 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 you know, shreds of meat, but tons of great meat, of, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That is the promise. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we're looking forward to that, this incredible party, the consolation of our hearts, the, 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 our, our king, our bridegroom, who will wipe away all of our tears, who will make everything sad come untrue. Any questions? Because um, uh, this last section I've made sort of semi-optional. I'm okay if I don't cover it. Uh, yes. Uh, Troy, right? Yeah. What was that verse you just read? Uh, it's in Isaiah, I believe it's Isaiah 6 and through 10. I just read Isaiah 25. I think it's 6 through 10, something like that. I know it's Isaiah 6. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry Isaiah, Isaiah 25, verse 6. Yeah. Any questions? Any other questions? All right. Well, in the short time I have, let me go on to the next section. Uh... It goes on, verse 17, or no, verse 15. Seven days you shall eat the unleavened bread. So, here's, here's what's happened. So, the Passover is a single day, but Passover is the beginning of a seven-day feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of all your houses. Um, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you have Jewish friends, you know that for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they're supposed to do some sort of really meticulous search to rid the house of all yeast. 
apparently it's some sort of intense scrubbing. Because <laughs> um, yeast, I, I'm, yeast, yeast is just anything, I don't know, I don't know, yeasty. <laughs> um, <I'm>, uh, <laughs> I betray my ignorance. All right. On the first day, you shall remove leaven out of all your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day into the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. So, so God, so, so, so scriptures, so this feast is a really unusual feast. It's a really, really big deal. Get rid of all the yeast, right? What, and don't eat anything with yeast in it. All your food is yeastless, uh, leavenless. Um, so what's going on? There's a lot of symbolism. And the symbolism is that yeast, is a picture of sin. Um, yeast, there's a lot of parallels. You know, yeast is invisible. Yeast spreads. Um, yeast corrupts. Um, listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, your boasting is not good. Notice he, he connects it to Passover, by the way. Uh, do you not know that a little leaven, he's talking about yeast, leavens the whole lump, right? So a little bit of, so the, what's the context, by the way? He's talking about sexual immorality in the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So he's talking about a little, someone's little sin is going to leaven the whole lump, cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So he's thinking specifically about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, right? So I think this is very significant, the order. It's Passover first, and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Because the Feast of Unleavened Bread is, what is it about? It's about personal holiness. It's about sanctification. It's about a life free from malice and evil, a life of sincerity and truth. Now, Notice that the fact that the order of the, it's first, it's Passover, right? And then it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Ooh. <laughs> uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, right? The order is very important because it contradicts both moralism and antinomianism. Let me explain these two very... Okay, so moralism is, God says to you, shape up, be a good person, live a good life, and then I'll save you. This says no, because God rescues his people before he asks them for a holy life. Right? So no to moralism. Moralism is God says, shape up, obey me, and then I'll save you. But also no to antinomianism. What is antinomianism? Nomian just means law. Antinomianism says, you're saved, God loves you, go ahead. It doesn't matter how you live, do anything you want, because God has rescued you anyway. No, because Passover is followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. If there was no Feast of Unleavened Bread, then yes, maybe antinomianism, but God rescues you, and then God said, now I want you to live for me, I want you to live in a, in a way that pleases me, that delights me, I want you to live, you know, obeying me. Um, so that's the point I wanted to make. Any questions? I have one. Yes, Troy. So in the verse 15 where it says, that person shall be cut off from Israel, does that mean killed or just thrown out of the nation and they're kind of like a vagabond or out there? <laughs> that, that means excommunication. Communication just means fellowship. Oh. So they are no longer a part of Israel. Um, they're not killed. Um they're 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 removed from 
the the fellowship, the people of God. Um, yes, that's what it means. It's it's not uh, in the Old Testament. Sometimes excommunication also meant death. Um, that's because there was a conflation with the civil laws. So a lot of times when you commit grievous sins, you also receive civil punishments. Civil punishments being, for example, adultery would result in death. Uh, but in the church, uh, unrepentant adultery, if you repent, you're, 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 you're forgiven, you're reconciled, you're brought back in. But unrepentant adultery results would, would, would result in uh, excommunication. That's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 15. So he's, in 1 Corinthians 5, so Paul says, remove them. Not remove them from friendship, not remove them from association. Because, of course, we associate with sinners all the time, unrepentant sinners all the time. It just means we take away the name Christian. We just basically say, because we love you, we, don't, we cannot regard you as a Christian. We want you to know that you're living your life in a way that contradicts the gospel, contradicts your professed faith in Christ. Um, that's all that, all that means. You have uncorked a Pandora's box of huge questions, which I'm going to... <laughs> okay, so they were so physically they weren't thrown out of the nation. They could they're in the nation. They just couldn't fellowship no more. Is that what you're saying? Or? Um, no. Again, because is because um, Old Testament Israel is a Old Testament Israel manifested the spiritual reality physically. Okay, so um, so yes, they would be physically removed. Um, but that's not true for the church, but it will be true in the new kingdoms, in the new, in the new heavens, in the new earth, uh, because there will be no evil in the new earth. There will be no um, rebellion. Again, that's complicated. I'm going to avoid it. Um, let me pray. Uh, thank you for your attention. Thank you for your participation. Heavenly Father, thank you for this feast of Passover. Thank you for giving us these three feasts that constantly tell us about Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Passover lamb. I pray that that would, that would encourage us, impress us with your love. Praise in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.